Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. This is Dan Turchin, host of AI and the Future of Work, and CEO of PeopleRain, an AI platform for IT and HR employee service. If you enjoy the podcast, and I hope you do, subscribe to our newsletter. It's at peoplerain.io slash podcast. That's people, rain, like the reign of a king or queen, R-E-I-G-N, dot I-O slash podcast. For bonus content and insights from guests like our great one that we have today. You know, uh, on the show, we talk to entrepreneurs, CIOs, and investors. But today's guest is on the inside at one of Silicon Valley's most respected venture firms, Shasta Ventures. Shasta invests in early stage enterprise software companies disrupting large markets. Shasta was an early investor in well, some companies you might have heard of, ones like Anaplan, Actio. Lucidworks, Nest, Stance, Steelbrick, Zora, and the list goes on. Ken has written extensively on AI as it impacts business models, and he has unique perspective on how the pandemic will affect venture investing and the future of work. Ken, glad to have you here. Welcome to the podcast. Why don't you start by uh, describing your background? Sounds good, and thanks for having me, Dan. I think I'm excited to be in this podcast. So where do I start? So like I said, I'm currently an investor at Trust Ventures, um, but I started off somewhere far away from the Bay Area where I'm at now. So I grew up, I was born and I grew up in the Philippines where I stayed there for most of my life, um, studied management science for undergrad. But my first job out of undergrad was actually helping um, banks make sure that their lending models are right and actually sometimes help them build the models as well. So as we think about you know future of work, there's a lot of decisions that are now being determined by these models. I think it has colored a lot of how I think about what markets are exciting as well. So did that a couple of years before moving on to do um, investment banking across Asia, and and then spent about a year um, traveling around the world. A lot of that is backpacking in the U.S., which was a great time. And then spent some time during that year just upskilling myself with data science as well. So did one of those data science boot camps before heading off to business school. And it was in business school where I really fell in love with venture. So I got a chance to work with Shasta Ventures as an intern. So spent several months there before I got to know what it's like to be a VC and then found the lucky opportunity to just join them after graduation and have been doing and loving it ever since. Well, here we sit in June 2020, we're recording this, and uh, over the last uh, 90, 90 plus days, a lot of us have uh, have shifted our our thoughts, our, our thoughts on the future of work have evolved. Um, how would you say your perspective on the future of work has changed over the past few months? I think it has changed a lot. I think it's tricky to distill any conclusions. I think we're all still in the middle of it, trying to figure it out. Um, sometimes I go down rabbit holes of train of thoughts about where it'll go. Um, but I think some things are clear. I think one is we re- realize like how ubiquitous remote work or hybrid work already is even before pandemic. It's just now we realize we're doing it because it's now in public consciousness. I think second is that it'll accelerate that trend because a lot of people who don't like remote work are forced to try it. So it opens up their mind to maybe we could spend three days of work in the office instead. So as we move towards that, and that's the first first direct implication, and started thinking about, okay, what are the second direct, second order impacts or third order impacts? 
right? And as we think about it, right, I think that it's a common phrase now, I think it's being reported all over media that remote work is actually sometimes more stressful, especially for the ones who are fortunate enough to still have work. Um, those who are doing knowledge work are spending more time on their laptop and meeting people. And there's also been research even before COVID that remote workers are actually more stressed even though they're more productive. So this gives us a clue and insight into like, okay, what are the new problems in this new world of work? We'll be working more, we'll be more stressed. So mental health will be an issue or an even bigger issue right now. And so I do think that there's some exciting opportunities um, there are some startups doing it, trying to tackle or the, tackle the problem of how do we make sure that everyone's mental health is okay. And then there's also like companies who are now trying to tackle how do managers make sure that their employees are okay, that their mental health are okay. So we see it from different angles, and I think those are one of those problems. And then I'm not sure how you think about it, but there's just so many ways they can turn out, right? To like everyone's more remote. What happens to corporate offices? Is it going to be community playgrounds now? How does that shape the future of the city? What that looks like? So it's a lot of exciting stuff, but I think that's how it has changed and it's still changing. And I expect it to change over the next six to 12 months as we figure out what works for us. Now you're in the catbird seat being at Chasta and hearing a lot of the most interesting, innovative pitches before the rest of the world is exposed to them. Give us one example of a pitch you've heard recently that kind of opened your eyes to what might be ahead in terms of the future of work. I think one is that I met them quite recently. It is um, a chat-based or mostly Slack-based app to handle all HR uh, admin stuff, right? As we all do more remote work, a lot of our work will done will be done through chat or email and for a lot of smbs so they're targeting smbs a lot of smbs sometimes just use slack to to do everything to communicate to send over files and stuff and so the startup had the brilliant idea why not do all the admin via chat right instead of having a separate system to record employer profile and upload the vacation request form you can just do it in, in easily in one line over Slack. And that just is kind of innovative in the sense that it it is very conscious of how everyone's changing to a more, I guess, Slack-based, for lack of a better word, uh, Slack-based type of work. That is an exciting company. Great example. So you've written about the importance of AI explainability as we interact with more kind of, call them AI-first technologies. Uh, explain to our listeners, what, what in your words is AI explainability? That's a great question. And I think it's great because it's so tough to explain it. So I think first is like, there's two words to there, right? Like first, what is even AI? And I think that itself is a tricky question because I think what AI is broadly is just an artificial system that mimics human thought or action. So we need to narrow that down. And I think the way to narrow it down is to think like, okay, what exactly what type of AI is popular in a particular you know, period of time. And when it was first started, AI coined, the popular type of AI was rules about symbolic systems, if-then type of AI. But now what's popular and what's really powering a lot of the innovation is machine learning, which is a subset of AI. And the defining characteristic of it is that tons of data and the AI model just figures out complex patterns for it. So I think that 
that is the frame at which we should look at it. Like this is the type of AI that we need to explain. Because before it's much more when we look at symbolic AI, it's easier to explain because it's all about logic. And I think we're more hardwired to logic as humans. But now when it's trying to infer complex pattern from millions of data points, that's not something we as humans are wired to do. So we need explainability to really distill down into simple sentences and simple explanations what those models do. And I think also another dimension to think about it, AI explainability really comes to front um, as a problem when it comes to dealing with actual solutions and services, right? Because once we build the solution and services, we have these different stakeholders that touches that solution. You have the engineers who build it, you have the business decision makers who use it, you have us as end consumers who deal with the consequences of it, you have the regulators who actually need to manage this. So what AI explainability means depends on exactly whose perspective, who's the person that's persona that's trying to understand what that AI is. Well, we can go through each of them, but for example, for the engineer who built the systems, what they want to know, okay, like what should I do with the model to increase its accuracy? Why is it making these types of decisions? Um, and then from a use end user perspective, going back to my roots of building lending models, us as recipients of the loan, what we want to know if we is if we didn't get approved, why, right? So we can take actions on it. For example, if we got denied the loan because our current income is too low or our savings accounts are too low or it's because our credit score is too low for whatever reason, we can take action on it. We don't necessarily need to know what model they use. We just need to know what factors we need to change so that we can get our loan approved. And for the regulators, it's about making sure there's no bias in, in the model, right? You don't discriminate between races or gender. Bias in AI algorithms is always a hot topic in our community. And of course, the concern is that as automated decisions become more prevalent in, to, to your point, things like loans, things like uh, education, healthcare, criminal justice, the bias built into training data will become bias built into the automated decisions. To, to what extent do you feel like um, great explainability compensates for AI bias? That's a good question. And I think we're in the middle of trying to figure that out. There's a lot of research that's trying to understand exactly even how to measure bias or what bias exactly is. How do you define it? And there's a research paper that just tried to collect, do a meta research of like the different ways academics have tried to define bias. There's over 50 plus ways you could do it. Each have its own mathematical definition. So I think as a first step, it's even as a society understanding, okay, what do we exactly mean by bias? And I'd imagine it differs from jurisdiction to jurisdiction or from country to country because each of each of these definitions reflect a certain value that we, we like. Um, is it pure, strictly gender equality, or is it about having everyone the same level, playing level field regardless of your gender? So I think that's the first step. And I think we're still in the early innings, but it definitely is an important part because if we want to tackle bias, the first part is even acknowledging that there is bias and understanding and defining what bias exactly is, is important. And as you know, as I probably went on a tirade, but it just shows like how early we still are in this process. But it's definitely as is an important part in in tackling AI bias. 
all AI essentially comes down to a data problem. So data quality, data quantity, polish your crystal ball, look three to five years out. Um, what will we be doing differently in terms of either regulatory frameworks or policies with regard to who, who owns the data and how it's used to train AI models? I think just broad brushes, broad strokes, right? I think future, we definitely own more of the data and we are beginning to see that, right? In California, we have, right, we have the right to ask companies to delete our data and not to sell our data to other, other companies. But we still haven't seen it in other jurisdictions or other states here in the US. And I think most countries in the world still don't have it. So I think there's definitely a trend towards us as individuals owning more data and rightly so too, I think. I think that's really important. But I think as we think of those policies moving towards this direction, I also think it's also important to look at different trends on how that will affect us from both technology side as well. Because when it, I think right now, I think the topic that we just kind of tackled on deals with, with privacy-ish type of issues. And it's also important that there are different ways to tackle these types of problems through from a technological lens. For example, there are now a bunch of startups doing innovative ways of being able to do pattern recognition in, in hash data or encrypted data. Previously, that would be difficult or too expensive to do so. But imagine if we don't have to reveal our personal data, then there's no problem, right? But then there are argue, counter arguments to that, that, oh, there is actually to reverse that process. So we're still in this exciting phase of, of startups or a research lab figuring out ways to really tackle those issues. This past week, IBM made a somewhat controversial decision to table all of their facial recognition research. And it looks like Microsoft and Amazon may, may follow suit. We all know that w without that data to train the models, these technologies starve. With regard to what's going on now about data ownership and some of the research being impacted by the potential ramifications of things like fa facial recognition, what do you what do you see happening in terms of the uh, kind of a pace of innovation in AI versus some of these uh, you know potential headwinds that AI research faces with regard to policy frameworks? Yep, I think that's a great question. I think what will happen is that AI innovation will slow down, and actually, I think it has to slow down because as it affects more of our lives, we need to be. As in, not only as the developers of these systems, but also as, for example, in our, in my situation as investors, we should be more conscious of how these um, applications or companies affect everyone. And like, there's, um, I've kind of dove deep into the process of like understanding how should we change development of AI systems inside companies or startups. And what I really want to see in teams, AI teams, is that when they develop these systems, they need to be conscious of like the different types of privacy risk or bias risk as they develop these systems. And that in effect will just necessarily slow down the process. Is that bad? It depends on what perspective, right? Is it, it's gonna be slower, but overall, is it worse? Um, because when I was doing, learning how to do data science before building models before, we didn't even really think about it. Um, but now we have to be more conscious of it because it's more important. Maybe before it wasn't in public consciousness, but now it is, and I think rightfully so as well. So it'll slow down, but I think it's for the better. 
I gotta get your take on this one. You uh, you quite literally open sourced the uh, kind of the operating plan for how to run a SaaS company, particularly in tough times. Um, great insights, by the way, and thank you on behalf of the entrepreneurial community for doing that. What I'd like to know is, from all the pitches that you see and your perspectives on the right way to run a SaaS business, what are some of the most common mistakes that you see portfolio companies make? The most common problem is being over-optimistic, I think, in this scenario. I think that extends not only to portfolio companies, but even to companies who are meeting for the first time, second time, or thinking about investing in as well. So maybe we can tackle it in those two parts, right? I think the worst thing you could do in a crisis scenario is be over-optimistic, over-invest, and then don't have any cards left to play once things don't work out. What you want to do is to be more conservative. So when it works out, you still have, say, the cash to reignite growth. And if it fails, you can survive longer and figure out what other options you have 12, 24 months from now. There, I think it's a regular conversations that VCs have to have with the portfolio companies, not to be over-optimistic, even though as VCs, we're the ones always pushing for growth. But I think it's it's more prudent for to be more real realistic than than over optimistic in these scenarios. And when it comes to pitches, maybe this is a side topic, is that it kind of carries on to pitches as well, wherein we don't want over optimism in the sense that it really crosses the boundary of maybe arrogance, for lack of a better word, wherein they say that we're the best company, even though. Um, so we, I often, or we often as VCs get emails, cold emails saying that we are the best company, that we'll, we'll be number one. I think as VCs, we're more attuned to the fact that having seen in so many companies that being number one is really, really tough. And second is that in any new category, there's probably dozens of companies already in that space um, and that we probably talk to. So I think being overconfident is, is probably a common trait that leads to lots of problems down the road where that's failure in us investing in them or when we invested in them maybe operationally it's going to be hard for them to come out through tough times this example of the pitch that stands out in your mind as being exceptional whether or not you invested just something that stands out in your mind as you know you're watching the entrepreneur and you just said there is one recent one, and I wouldn't even really call it a pitch. I think you'll hear it from a lot of VCs, the batch quote and quote pitches are the ones that are more like conversations and you have that chemistry. So there's this one company that's in the uh, data labeling space, and I just met the entrepreneur um, when I reached out to him because I thought he was doing something cool. So when we connected and just chatted, I think it was very clear from, from that entrepreneur that he knew the problem well. So I think you'll hear this phrase from VCs, there's this founder problem or founder market fit. Because then as someone who's trying to really look into the space, I could resonate with, with what he talks about. Then I also think there's also an element of founder VC fit, wherein I've dealt with that problem before in, in some capacity. So there was a really nice conversation going between the both of us. I think the second part of why it it's a really good conversation or a pitch is that whenever there's like a back and forth in dialogue, the entrepreneur, or the founder was always very thoughtful and not super overconfident in his, his answers or his world out view. Um, for example, right, uh, the entrepreneur was 
demoing the product on how it works. And as with a lot of early stage companies, doing live demos is tricky because you don't want to show something fail or some, there's a bug during, during the demo. But I've encountered plenty, we've encountered plenty of that during that demo. There were, oh, he would always stop and say, oh, this is not working well. We should fix that. A lot of the software features are still being built out and tested. And live demos are tricky, but the entrepreneur was, you know, in a way very confident about showing the product. And I think what impressed me was not so much the flawlessness of the product, but that we encountered a lot of bugs in the product. But so I was impressed in how he handled it. It was more like he acknowledged the bug. He wrote it down as, oh, okay, this is something I need to tackle and just moved on. And it, he wasn't exactly apologetic about it. He just acknowledges a natural part of the process. And I acknowledge that like, you know, in such an early stage company, there's going to be a lot of bugs. So that confidence and just being thoughtful about noting down the bugs and so that you can pass that off to the product or the engineering team just really impressed me as well. That Those are the main reasons why I was impressed. This was a recent one, so I'm maybe biased on highlighting this example, but I really like it, I guess, just to summarize this founder market fit, this founder VC fit, as well as the ability to be thoughtful about doing the demos and not being afraid to acknowledge like, okay, there's just some bugs um, at this early stage of, of the development. Did you fund the company? No, I think since this was recent, we're still in conversations with them. But I think what's clear is that there's definitely a good chemistry between the, the founder and the company and us. So we're really, really excited about this company. And since usually VCs like to invest in companies and founders they built their relationships with over time. So we're still in that process of building that relationship. We'll have you back and you can tell us the uh, dramatic conclusion. Now, uh, there's a lot of hand-wringing in the, in the venture community these days about lack of diversity at venture firms. What's your perspective on the impact to the innovation ecosystem, to funding, etc.? What's the impact of that on the, the investment community? What that ultimately boils down to is the lack of, I guess, diversity and innovation as well. Because a lot of the times VCs will fund companies that tackle pain points that they resonate with. And when you have a non-diverse VC community, then they'll just fund the pain points that they know. And you can imagine how that might translate into not funding certain type of companies or solutions. One example that I think from my own experience is that I'm kind of like a mentor advisor to a educational VC program called Going VC. And as part of the program, I kind of help mentor people who bring in deals and help them think through and assess those, those opportunities. And there was this one opportunity about, um, automatic or handless um see i think this is one good example of lack of diversity is that i don't know if handless milk pumps breast milk pumps right and it's a problem that i know is a problem and it's a hard thing for for mothers but as a man young man unmarried man it's not a problem that I exactly resonate with and very fortunate to have women on that group as well that i help mentor so I would seek out to, I would look to their advice to just to understand how big of a pain point that is. 
And you can imagine if there's no women, there's no reference for me to understand exactly what that pain point is and how big of a problem that is. But by having, you know, women on, on the board, we decided to, you know, push it to the next step of IC. And you can kind of see, like, stepping back, how that kind of expands into the broader BC community. If there's no women, lack of, of mental and experience, experiential diversity, how certain only a narrow set of innovations will get funded and seen through. Good example. Okay, we're almost out of time, but I got to get this one last question in. I'm, uh, I'm curious. You mentioned that uh, you did some backpacking around the States. Uh, how has that impacted your, the, the rest of your career or maybe even your perspectives uh, as a venture investor? I think the number one impact is being comfortable and just, okay, let me take a step. It's being open to both experiences and just talking to people. Right. In backpacking, I think the nature of it is that you just don't know where you're going until maybe the next six hours or next 24 hours, and you don't know who you will be talking to. And I think in the VC world, a lot of it is like that. You just don't know who you'll meet, who you'll befriend with, who you'll grab coffee with. And then later on in life, you don't know if that'll turn out into a partnership or collaboration. Right. And I think backpacking has just helped me get comfortable with that experience, which I think I do a lot of now in, in my career. Good insights. Ken, it's been such a pleasure. feels like we're just getting started. But uh, like I said, maybe you'll come back and we can talk about uh, how some of this uh, all plays out. That worked for you? Yep, awesome. I'm happy to be back and thanks for having me today. Good. Well, great having Ken, Ken on the show from Shasta Ventures. If you like the episode and you're interested in future episodes, go ahead and sign up for the newsletter. You'll get uh, additional insights from guests like Ken and some bonus content. PeopleRain.io slash podcast. PeopleRain, like the reign of a king or queen, .io slash podcast. Thanks to Ken and thanks to everyone for listening.